The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. This new law also provides tax credits that's going to create tens of thousands of good-paying jobs, clean energy manufacturing jobs, solar factories in the Midwest and the South, wind farms across the plains and off our shores, clean hydrogen projects, and more all across America, every part of America. That was Joe Biden speaking last year about the benefits of green subsidies, which should have been a boon to companies like wind turbine maker Orsted. But far from enjoying the spoils of subsidies, Orsted has lost tens of billions of dollars off its market value this year. But why aren't these companies doing well when there is such demand for clean energy? Stay tuned for this week's Views Room. Welcome back to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views, where columnists from around the world talk about the big stories of the week. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Companies that specialise in green energy, and more specifically offshore wind, are having a torrid time. Orsted's share price has collapsed by 80% since its peak in 2021. But it seems an odd turn of events that the companies that are charged with providing green energy infrastructure are doing so badly when there is such a push for alternatives to fossil fuels. Here to try and unpick this situation is Lisa Yuka, our European business editor, and George Hay, EMEA editor of Breaking Views. Welcome, Lisa and George. Welcome. So, George, I mean, I think it probably would be best to to try and explain what has been going on with with Orsted, this, you know, this Danish, you know, wind turbine maker. What has been going on with this company and what has led to this massive sell off lately? Yeah, well, um, Orsted is really kind of interesting company because um, not so long ago, pretty much beginning of 2021, you would have said it's kind of a real green star and real like um objective kind of uh fascination for investors and people were kind of crowding into it and its share price um surged and it got up to be basically having a market cap of about 80 billion and um now as a in with reference to what you say it's it's, it's basically well below it's, it's almost around 15 billion one five and um I mean, that kind of collapse is is usually indicative of something completely disastrous going wrong. And it, it does, it is odd, given that um, the basic build out and the basic requirements of um, the build out for offshore wind, which is what it does, and all the other types of renewable energy, it's not like they've gone away. It's not like everyone said, okay, actually, we, we just, you know, we don't need any of that stuff, um, which would usually kind of legitimize such a massive collapse. Uh, and basically, there's a few things that have kind of obviously gone on. Um, basically, a uh, fairly obvious thing is like this is problems with supply chains, which are kind of across the industry and across across the world post-COVID. Um, supply chain disruptions, uh, inflation in costs in uh, some of those supply chains. Um, and if you're um, basically, it's a big problem if you're if you're if you're into offshore wind huge capital costs involved in kind of towing uh, massive turbines out into the middle of the sea and uh, and um, you know uh, creating these projects and uh, one key thing is that the cost of these turbines has gone you know through the roof gone up uh, the, the, the turbines that are made by people like Vestas 
also a, a Danish firm, and uh, Siemens Energy or Siemens Gamesa, the part of it. Um, they've kind of gone up. They went up by about 30, 40 percent even. Um, and basically, the problem with um, the problem for Orsted and the other players in the sector is that um, they have, uh, you know, basically they have their input costs and they're they know that at some point they they are going to make um, a lot of money or a steady return by selling the electricity that they generate from these projects. But um, the governments have basically been helping them along by basically guaranteeing the price at which they can kind of sell that electricity. Um, but the, the the basic problem is that the uh, increase in costs means that those numbers don't really work so well anymore. Um, and so uh, a, a classic example is um, they have this project in the North Sea in the UK called Hornsey 3, um, massive project. Um, and uh, they basically are that the UK allows them to will allow them or guarantee a, a price of, uh, of a certain point of around 37, 38 um, uh, pounds per megawatt hour. And um, that's that is just not going to be enough to cover their costs anymore. So like they've been going back to the UK government saying, can we get a, uh, can you kind of improve the subsidies? And so far that's not really worked. Um, they've also had problems with uh, projects in the US. Um, and um, so there's all that, and Allstate has been particularly hit, hit by this because uh, they were kind of an early adopter. They were one of the kind of first guys out of the block um, they signed up all these um, uh, projects with subsidies, which predate all the problems in the supply chain and the inflation of costs. So they are kind of disproportionately hit by all this. But one thing I would add on top of that, um, which is probably the key problem, is that they've they've got into this debilitating spiral as a company where we really never want to be, whereby <laughs> investors don't really trust what you say because they came out um earlier in the year kind of uh q2 time well actually at the q2 q2s they were kind of like people were worried about um the outlook on subsidies the outlook on the supply chain and they said and they kind of basically get a gave a kind of everything's roughly okay we've got these problems but they're not too bad and then at the end of august they came out and said actually they're really bad and we've got to take billions and billions of rights ads and then that was bad enough the shares collapsed then and then in um and last week um at q3s uh, rather than coming out and saying okay nothing's got worse they came out and said actually the write down is way bigger and that's just where you don't want to be as a company because people it gets to a point where people say oh you know i'm not i'm gonna factor in a lot of uncertainty and a big uncertainty discount because i'm not sure that this company knows what it's doing or um is is able to kind of solve these problems so that's really the problem where they are at the moment and and lisa is there any signs that they could be in for a recovery that some of these these costs these really inflated costs that they have been dealing with are coming down that it would be easier for them to make money i mean we're seeing inflation coming down in other areas is this is wind going to benefit from any of that so i generally see this setback i mean this large setback as as uh, as 
potentially temporary, but the issue is, you know, how long is the temporary element of the setback going to be? Uh, because as you say, inflation is coming down and also at some point, you know, technology will develop in a way that will make um, the possibility of installing, you know, some of these huge turbines uh, cheaper, or maybe we will be able to produce more energy with smaller turbines, because I mean, the technical challenge is a big factor, you know, in some of the issues we have uh, seen happening. Um, the other thing I wanted to, and by the way, sorry, just making a comparison with solar, you may remember that at the beginning of, you know, the solar panel journey, uh, these were expensive, you know, it was not kind of easy to make a return, but now the costs have gone down significantly and actually solar is probably the cheaper technology to produce energy. But, you know, it's been a journey that has lasted for several decades. Um, the, the other thing I would like to mention is that the 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 majority of the problems linked to the wind segment at the moment are seem at least to be concentrated or you know in the offshore space you know which is really the most challenging and and costly because of uh, as i was saying you know the the technical issues that uh, people are facing but that uh, i was speaking to an expert just the other day is only 20% of the global wind market so to completely write off uh, you know the global wind market uh, at this stage is is probably early, but you know investors will have to be patient. Uh, um, you know as the segment readjusts. Yeah, mm. and that, that, that's that's quite right. And like the, um, uh, you know, it, it, it even though um, if you look at the projections uh, of how much wind and how much solar there's going to be by 2030, um, some people like the International Energy um, Agency are, are kind of uh, assuming there'll be more solar and less wind. Um, it's not like there'll be no wind. There'll still be multiple, very many multiples of the capacity we currently have. So there's still that's that that's the kind of funny thing about this. Um, one one thing that Allstead does kind of have in its favour, um, I suppose you could look at it this like this is just um, they are they have a kind of bit of a um, protection against uh, some big company coming in and exploiting the fact they're incredibly cheap. Um, mm because basically they have their 50% owned by the Danish government and the Danish government I mean who knows maybe they'll get sick of it and flog it uh, tomorrow but I I I wouldn't I, I would assume not so because because they are uh, critical infrastructure so you know they're unlikely to sell I would say uh, or unlikely to be able to sell and therefore you know maybe they can kind of uh, ride, ride out the storm um and hunker down but like i suppose there is you know there is an issue with the more that they have to write down and the more that they you know if 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 they're going to kind of withdraw from projects that people thought that they were going to be um in then that will affect the amount of EBITDA they're making um from you know in the in the analyst forecast going forward and at some point you know they might have to kind of raise equity in order to kind of uh, shore up their balance sheet. I mean, that's it's all slightly up in the air, and obviously the Danish government would have to have a would have a, have a big say in that too. But like, um, that's you know, uh, in terms of their kind of vulnerability to take to a takeover, that does kind of act as a kind of block on that. 
Absolutely. And I mean, Lisa, do you think that there are any lessons that could be learned from essentially what's happened? Because I do remember covering, as George commented on, you know, Siemens Gamesa and the situation that they found, which was it seemed like they were, you know, making these contracts and then building them at a point when the cost of materials had gone up so much. So they were making sort of a loss on some of the, the contracts they had. I mean, are they shifting in the way that they kind of think about future contracts? Because you know, as we know, wind, solar, whatever it is, they are, there is a big push on this. So trying to get that profit right and trying to figure out how you forecast how expensive things will be seems quite well, important for, to this business. Yeah, no, no, it is important. And for sure, they're shifting. I mean, we know that, you know, all uh, investors also in this space, you know, are sort of, you know, readjusting if you want. You know, I'm thinking private equity in particular, you know, their return estimates. But the problem is that, uh, you know, we have gone through a very big and quick shift and that's linked to, you know, the spike in inflation, the rise, the massive rise in, in interest rates. And let's not forget that we, you know, we've gone through a decade of free money, basically. And so, you know, when you have free money, um, you know, your return prospects look at a certain level, you know, if interest rates are at 5%, <laughs> then, uh, you know, the situation is quite different. So certainly that, you know, has dislodged, you know, a, a, a lot of the expectations and created the, the issues, you know, I mean, I think uh, uh, people will be more cautious in the future, but I also think that, you know, there could be an element that we can't really predict right now, which is the technological development. Uh, so it, it's kind of difficult. So it may be that, uh, um, you know, interest rates maybe stay high for longer, but it may also be that uh, in five years from now, there's a big breakthrough and uh, it's much cheaper um, to, to build these turbines uh, or, you know, new materials can be found. And if it's not that positive, George, how things kind of turn out, does this does this in some way like, you know, slow down like how close we can get to net zero, like the, the path to net zero? Because obviously having clean energy is such a, a key part of that plan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's it's clearly a massive problem that um, yeah, you can see it specifically in you know a couple of years ago it was like BP and Shell some of the European oil companies were you know quite keen to get into renewables and you can see now that they you know they've known for increasingly become aware that the returns they get from renewables are lower than they get from oil and that's a bit of a, a difficulty for them um, but I mean in a way there's a kind of chicken and egg uh, a dynamic here it's just like um it's ultimately it's the government's problem the governments have these decarbonization targets and um you know <laughs> when there's increasing signs of climate change uh, become increasingly visible um they there will be increasing pressure for them to do something about it and they will you know to the extent that they are dragging their feet on subsidies to make that happen I imagine those subsidies would then be improved, but like th there is, there's clearly a, a, a basic problem with, um, you know, the, the the way that some of the factors that Lisa's talking about have kind of changed the game. Uh, it's not obvious in all sectors that uh, the government of governments have caught up with that in terms of uh, where they need to position their subsidies, and you know, we're still in a world where people are saying you know, uh, 
we actually we don't need more renewables we need um more oil and gas because that's more secure secure and um we'll th- we'll sort out the emissions problem later and um and they you know people will kind of uh jump on the fact that wind and even though wind and solar the cost of it has kind of collapsed in the last decade the fact that it is now like going to be a little bit more expensive from a subsidy point of view will be seized on by those people which make things all the more difficult but i mean what as as we were talking about earlier you know it's really it's very clear everyone's all the recognized people like the iea and who and all the rest have done the numbers on what the capacity of renewable energy will need to be by 2030 2050 everyone knows those numbers who is in the space and those numbers have not gone away so it's not like you know okay maybe there's some kind of massive maybe someone finds a way to uh, suck carbon out of the air really easily and cost efficiently and then we just carry on with what we have you know it's not impossible that that happens but uh, if you look at the kind of build out of renewables in China they are taking it very seriously they are kind of making progress it is happening it's just some players like Orsted are kind of being caught in the crossfire that we see at the moment if I can just add, you know, maybe a final comment. Uh, it's also, you know, increasingly clear that, uh, as as George was kind of mentioning, right now there's a bit of a bifurcation. So, you know, solar becoming uh, very economical. And to be honest, uh, I mean, there were subsidies for solar at the beginning of, uh, uh, yeah. you know, the technical journey. They've been you know, entirely removed in China. I was there, you know, just the last month. I mean, there, there's no more subsidies for the solar industry in China, right? Mm. And then the other thing I would say is that uh, for investors, you know, there's other segments, which, you know, that so the, the renewable universe is no more just seen as a kind of solar versus, you know, wind, but there are a lot of sub-segments, you know, battery storage facilities, uh, yeah. interconnectors, cables, you know. I mean, so in a way, um, for private investors in particular, there's, you know, a lot of these sub-segments where they can channel the money. There's a lot of dry power that are still with the, within the PE word, for instance, and that may allow the governments, you know, to kind of focus on those areas which are at this stage struggling, but, you know, may uh, potentially um, improve, you know, in terms of the feasibility going forward. I mean, it is a long journey. And a lot of these investors, by the way, are should have a long term vision because, you know, these these capital, uh, you know, will it needs to be deployed, you know, over decades, you know, rather than, you know, if people have a sort of quarter by quarter mentality, I mean, it's it's quite difficult, you know, to then approach um, the investment, you know, with the, with this type of areas. So so problems with wind kind of set up opportunities for for you know finding other sources of whether it's whether it's not other types of energy or just finding new ways to kind of keep the the green energy you're creating for longer. So that 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 is a that is at least an optimistic note to end on. Um, well, thank you very much, Lisa and George. That was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to the Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and on X, where our handle is at BreakingViews.
I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.